This morning we're in the book of Revelation again. This is our third week in Revelation. And uh, I didn't plan it with the theater, but I guess this wild and crazy set that we have up here and hanging from the rafters is appropriate maybe even. Because this is Revelation. I mean, what do you expect? The visions are strange and they're very unexpected. And uh, that's what you've got here in this theater. Providence is a good thing, I suppose. So this morning brings us to what you know, if you know the book of Revelation, this sequence of the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And just so you kind of know the game plan, I don't intend to start going through each of the seven letters in sequence over the next seven weeks. That's not what we're going to do. This morning we're going to do the first of those seven letters, and then next week we're going to launch on into the bigger part of the book, and we probably will return to some of these letters as we go at different times uh, along the way. But this morning, we'll begin with this letter to the church in Ephesus. And so you can turn in your Bibles, or you can find it in your bulletin on page 8, the text of the Scripture this morning. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, I pray that you would be with us, that you would again visit upon us by your Spirit, enable our hearts and our minds to understand and to believe this good news and to turn to you in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A few weeks ago in a sermon, I made the allusion to the fact of uh, a job that I would often love to have, the job of a mailman. And when I did that, one very brave soul spoke out and said, Why? Now I know who it was. And we still baptized his sister this morning. But I won't tell you which one. I was very proud of this little voice speaking out like that. It was a great question. Why would you want to be a mailman? Somebody should have asked that question. I gave a couple of answers briefly to it. And another answer to that question would be this. 
You know, you learn a lot about a person, or you could, if you knew what kind of mail they receive. Don't you think? You could at least form some impressions. They may or may not be exactly accurate. I mean, don't you sometimes wonder? Maybe you don't, but maybe you should. Don't you wonder what your mailman thinks about you? Hey, he gets Scientific American and Duck Dynasty Weekly. I'm not sure what this says about this person, but it makes me curious. Even more, have you ever read somebody else's mail or received it in your box? Has that ever happened to you? We lived in an apartment complex for a few months before we moved into our current house, and there in the mailbox in the apartment complex kept arriving letters and and mail for the previous tenant. It was apparently a few guys who lived in this apartment together, and so we received mail under a few different names, and one of them in particular just kept on coming and coming and coming, bank statements and bills. I kept taking them dutifully down to the apartment office and saying, hey, the previous guy's mail is coming, and can you? And they said, oh, yeah, we'll take care of it. We'll forward it on. Well, it kept coming. The whole time we were there, we were receiving mail for this guy. And eventually, these notices, these statements, these bills started to have the red letters on the outside. Final notice. You better respond. And, you know, it kind of became embarrassing for the guy, unbeknownst to him. He didn't know what I was seeing of his mail, but kind of embarrassing. The book of Revelation is like reading other people's mail. That's what we've done here just now this morning. This book is a letter written by John, received by him from Jesus, and now to be circulated to the seven churches of Asia Minor, what we call modern-day Turkey. And all of these churches would hear each other's mail. It was going to come in sequence, beginning with Ephesus. That was the geographically closest one to where Paul, or John rather, was on the island of Patmos. And it would proceed on from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum and so on around the loop. This circulated letter would go to each of them. The Ephesians would receive it first. And you have to wonder what each successive church thought as they heard mail that belonged to their neighbor. Don't you kind of wonder? I mean, the church at Pergamum heard this letter read to them after Ephesus and Smyrna, and you must have, surely they must have thought, huh, you know, Ephesus, they got it kind of hard. I mean, they had some embarrassing things in their letter that, that the Lord said to them. Wow. Well, but then surely they must have begun to think, a letter's on its way for us too. What's it going to say? They had to wonder, you know, here's mail for the whole church coming from one to the next to the next to the next with some embarrassing things to say, some difficult things to say. The church itself was only a few decades old at this point in history. You have to remember, late in the first century, it had only been a few decades really since Paul had been planting churches and others as well. These churches had not been around for very long, but problems were beginning to show up. They had tribulation, no doubt. The the churches lived in a society, the Roman Empire, that was not friendly to churches. The society itself and the Roman emperors themselves were no friend of Christian churches. They knew tribulation for sure. But they also, after just a few decades, had dead leaves on their branches. 
I have a ficus tree in my office, and once a week or so, when I water this tree, I also tap the trunk of the tree. And you know what happens. Dead leaves start to fall down, and I can pick them up and throw them in the trash. Revelation is God tapping the trunk of the tree. He's tapping the trunk of the church to see the dead leaves fall down so that he can throw them in the trash. This is a letter to the whole church. There are common parts of each of these seven letters. If you are looking in your Bible, you can see them as they unfold together through chapters 2 and 3. Every one of these seven letters begins with a statement of identity from the sender of the letter. And each one is some aspect of John's vision of Christ, which we saw last week as he was introduced to this old friend of his. Every one of them has some aspect of that vision. And almost all of the letters have some element of commendation, something good that's happening in the church, as well as some element of critique, something bad that's happening. Two of them don't have both of those. The second letter, the one to the church in Smyrna, has no critique in it at all. Not that there weren't problems in that church, but that church was about to undergo, undergo severe persecution, to be thrown into prison, as the letter says. And so the letter is simply an encouragement to them. The last church that receives a letter, the church in Laodicea, the seventh letter, has no commendation in it. It's only critique. Maybe the unhealthiest and worst off among the seven churches, perhaps. All of the churches receive some exhortation of what the Lord wants for them to do, and all of them receive a promise of what good fruit will come if they do those things. And all of them conclude with the same sorts of words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The male is going to be shared. All of the church is going to receive it. And it applies to all of them. Now this book, Revelation, it's not just, as we've seen, a revelation. It's not just a vision or a prophecy or a letter. Actually, it's also something else. It's a summary, I would suggest to you, of world history. This is what this book is. It's a summary of all of world history with cinematic creativity. It pictures with wild and unexpected scenes the rise and fall of nations, the thriving and and crashing of economies, the strengthening and weakening of military, the hope and despair of politics and of war, and eventually the coming peace. It shows all of these things. But to show these things, God first introduces us to that old friend that we saw last week. He introduces us to Jesus in his cosmic and eternal scope, as John had never seen him before. But just after that, God then takes you to church. In order to summarize all of world history, he takes you to church. He introduces you to these letters to the seven churches because the preparation of the church is the most important thing that God is doing in all of history. Doug Kelly is a theologian, a professor, who puts it this way. He said, It is as if all of history is the dressing room for the bride of Christ. And to that church in Ephesus, this is what the Lord says. I know 
what you do. The Ephesian church did a lot, you know. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you, can, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This actually reminds me of a presbytery meeting. John, don't you think? I mean, this is the description of a presbytery meeting, for better or for worse, to be honest. I mean, I say that as part tongue-in-cheek criticism and part admiring compliment because a presbytery meeting really kind of is like this. Mary will remember her first presbytery meeting, which made her not ever want to go to one again. It was my ordination exams in Savannah, Georgia, which was, what, 16 years ago or 17 years sometime ago. And she'll remember it well, how I was basically like a dog at the veterinarian, having all of the fleas picked out and all the problems investigated and, you know, let's look in places where he doesn't want to show. That's what happens at a presbytery meeting, and in so many ways it's a really good thing. And this is the commendation that this church receives. This Ephesian church was a strong church in a large and thriving city. Ephesus was one of the prominent cities in the Roman Empire. A quarter of a million people or so in this coastal city. And Paul, the apostle, had preached to hundreds, maybe to thousands even, of people here in this city. The theater in this city would seat not 400 people, but 25,000 people, if you can imagine. Maybe some of you have been there before and stood in that theater, which is still there today. 25,000 people would fit there. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that Paul preached to the throngs of the theater, but it does tell us he did have a conflict in the midst of that theater with thousands of people clearly knowing what this man was up to and not liking it a whole lot. This was a, a strong church in a difficult place, and it probably was even a church-planting church. You might surmise that this church in Ephesus was the mother church of the other six who were receiving letters. They didn't exist when this church began, and now they did. This church had a great theological heritage, and it had for several decades, at least 40 years or so. Now, you have to consider the lineup of the shepherds who had come through Ephesus. Think about this. Apollos was a man who first showed up in Ephesus teaching. Even before Paul got there, Apollos was an eloquent and persuasive, and the Bible tells us in Acts, a powerful debater with those who didn't agree with him. This man was a preacher of preachers, Apollos. And then Paul came after him, and the Apostle Paul taught daily in the Tyrannus Hall for two years in Ephesus. And then Paul left behind Timothy. He wrote his letter to Timothy in Ephesus. I left you behind in Ephesus, Timothy, so that you could prevent false teachers from rising up in the church. And then not just that, but even the Apostle John, it's noted in church history, made his way eventually to Ephesus where he served as bishop, the lead shepherd in this city. If there were any first century churches that were known as having celebrity pastors... This was the one. They had a lineup of theological heritage here in this church. And Paul, in his last visit to this church in Acts chapter 20, said this to the elders who came to meet him and tearfully parted ways with him. Paul said this to them. He said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
After I leave, fierce wolves will come and men will rise up speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away from the gospel. So be alert, he said to them. They took those words to heart, no doubt. They were very careful. They were very attentive to those things for the decades to come. And Paul even would later write that letter to them, you know, that famous letter to the Ephesians. One of the most theological letters in the New Testament. This great depth of theology of God's eternal plan and the building of the church as the most important thing that God was doing in all of human history. This church not only was doctrinally sound, but they also were morally sharp. Did you notice he says one little thing, that they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, and the Lord is glad for that because he also hates that. Who are the Nicolaitans? We don't know for sure, really fully, but there's suggestion from the pieces and puzzles of history that this was a group of, of religious people in the first century who compromised Christianity, mixing it up with some of the worldly customs, especially those of, phys- of physical indulgence in the world at the time, in some of the decadence of the world. And it happened in the midst of the very common temptation throughout the ages of What's the harm? Everybody else is doing it. Why shouldn't we? This is who the Nicolaitans were, and this church hated the Nicolaitans. They were doctrinally sound. They were morally sharp. Now, if you're visiting with us today, I want to say a quick word of of, uh, denominational history for you. Our denomination is called the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, and If you read the literature, you'll read that our denomination was supposedly born in 1973 in Birmingham, Alabama. That's the press release, but I will tell you, that's wrong. Our denomination was actually born, if you read the book of Revelation, in the late first century in Ephesus. These were our people. These are our brothers and sisters. They're doctrinally sound. They're morally sharp, at least outwardly, right? They do a lot of good things, and all that they do is proper and in good order. And that's a presbytery meeting, right? You know, our works are many as a denomination, as a church. Our toil is, you know, well, we we overachieve. We do a lot. Our patient endurance, we've only been around for about 40 years, but I guess that's all that the Ephesians had been around for. Maybe we get credit for patient endurance too. We can't bear evil doers, at least not the ones who come under the varieties that we don't prefer. We are immediately willing and able to test any who would claim to be a shepherd, and we do do that, and That's a good thing. They're all really, really good things. But, you know, there's an old adage that comes true here that your greatest strength can become what? So easily your greatest weakness. And that's what had happened in this church in Ephesus. The writer of this letter says, look, I know what you do, and it's really good. But I also know what you've lost. And that alone may disqualify you completely. They receive a good commendation, but the criticism is very strong. Verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, the, the drama of that shouldn't be surprising to us at all. 
And if we don't sense it, then we should, because sometimes what you have lost can completely overshadow all that you have. Some years ago, we went with uh, one of our kids' grandmothers who took us on a trip to Disney World. We hadn't won the Super Bowl. She just took us to Disney World. And there we went through all the parks for a few weeks. Our kids were little. They were early elementary at the time. And one afternoon we had spent the the day at the Epcot Center in one of those parks there. And it had been a long day of huge crowds and waiting in line and all that kind of stuff. And we were leaving the park. It was dusk. The light was, was fading quickly. And we were leaving the park. And all through the day, as you parents know, you've been through one of these parks, crowds with your, your own kids, you're constantly looking around to make sure your kids are with you, right? And so we were leaving the park. Our kids were with us. They'd been with us all day long. And, and I can remember as the dark fell down upon us, we were walking down a pathway that was lined with these big walls of kind of artistic decoration. And I took a quick glance back to see, and one of our kids was gone. He was gone. And for a moment, my heart skipped a beat. And then it skipped another beat. And then another. And I looked around and I thought, there are a couple of them here, but one of them is gone. I was ready to turn back to the park. Mom and Dad, you know what I'm talking about. To turn back and undo everything and go and find where this child was. Well, one of them had dashed around one of the walls thinking this would be kind of fun. Let me hide for a moment and then reappear. And Dad's about to have a heart attack. I wanted to strangle this one. (laughs) There are some things which, if lost render everything else inconsequential. The Ephesians had lost such a thing. They'd lost their love that they had at first. Now, other churches had been warned of this same thing. Paul had written to the Corinthians a phrase that maybe you know. He said, If I have prophetic powers, and if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so much so as to be able to remove mountains, but have not love, then I am nothing. Okay, think about that. Seriously, Paul? I mean, seriously? Prophetic powers? Mysteries and knowledge? Faith? That's a good thing. The Bible tells us to have faith to move mountains, right? If I, if I have those things... But I have not love. I'm nothing. Really? Seriously, Paul? I mean, Paul, listen, you've just yanked the carpet out from under all of my superhero aspirations. I mean, these are the things that if I could have, I would have them. Can you imagine having prophetic powers? Having all understanding of mysteries and knowledge, even having faith to move mountains. But he says, if you have not love, then you are nothing. This one thing, having lost it, renders everything else completely inconsequential. And this was the Ephesians' problem. They had abandoned the love that they had at first. Now, when we read this in our culture, in our day, we very quickly assume that we understand exactly what he's talking about. And I bet you're with me in this. Because we think, yeah, I know, that mountaintop experience never lasts for long. I've lost that too. I've lost that so many times. I've had mountaintop experiences. I really loved Jesus when I was in junior high school, and then I didn't. And then I really loved him on that college retreat, 
and then I didn't. And then I, I really loved him when I joined that church. It was really good. But then I didn't. I know the mountaintop experience just doesn't last for long. Maybe I've lost that love too. But the love that's born from out of the gospel is not a momentary feeling. It can't be this. This, is, this can't be what this letter is referring to. And you know it because of that account of the restoration of Peter that you heard a while ago. You know, three times he had denied even knowing Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. That's not me, he had said again and again. Three times denied him out of his own fear and his own doubt, surely. And then some days later, after the resurrection, Peter's with other of the disciples down by the lake. And they go fishing. They catch nothing. And they return to the shore. And Jesus is standing there on the shore. He's the resurrected Christ. He's returned from the dead. And he tells them, you're dropping the net on the wrong side of the boat. Try the other side. And they do. And it loads up with fish. And the disciples recognize who it is that gave them that instruction. Peter jumps in the water and swims to shore. You know the story, right? They sit down for breakfast with Jesus. And then this conversation begins to unfold. And Jesus asks Peter the question. Now, Peter had denied Jesus because of his fear and because of his doubt in the heat of the moment. But Jesus' question for him is not, Peter, do you trust me? I mean, you'd kind of expect him to say that. Peter, do you believe me? That's not what he asked. He said, Peter, do you love me? Well, you know that I do, Lord. Again and again, do you love me? You know I do. Do you love me? You know I do. The three times are symbolic, surely, for Peter's own denial, but they're also therapeutic for Peter because he wasn't so sure that he loved Jesus. He couldn't have been. He had to have begun to doubt not Jesus but himself. Maybe I don't really love him because of the way that I denied him. He had to have wondered, how can I know that I love Jesus? We ask that question of ourselves often enough, I imagine, and sometimes we give pretty questionable answers to it. I've been baptized. That must prove that I love Jesus. In our culture, people will redo their baptism many times because they just can't persuade themselves that they love Jesus enough. Or, I've learned some theology and I can talk a pretty good church shop game with anybody that comes along. That must prove that I love Jesus. Or, I've ratted out the evildoers. I've pointed fingers at the gay marriage. I've called out the abortionists. I've pointed at the haters who murder people in their hearts. I've ratted out the evildoers. That must prove that I love Jesus. But look, those things just fall into the category of commendation that the Ephesians had received. What did Jesus say to Peter when he'd finished his questions? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What did he say? Do you remember what you heard a while ago? Basically, what what Jesus said to him is this. Listen, Peter, okay, you love me, now follow me. Follow me. It's really sort of that simple. Do you love Jesus? Then follow him. 
The operative question, though, for Peter at that moment is, where is he going? And at that moment in the gospel accounts, Jesus was about to return to heaven. He was returning to the Father in heaven, a place where Peter could not go at that stage of his life. And so the command, if you love me, then follow me, was not so much a go where I'm going, but rather a do what I'm doing, Peter. If you love me, then do what I'm doing. Follow me. And what was he doing? What was Jesus going to do? He was going to dismantle the reign of the imposter. The book of Revelation presents that to you. He was going to free the captives. The book of Revelation presents that to you. He was going to do justice and mercy for those who were chained by the evil one's work. The book of Revelation presents that to you with clarity. If you love him, then do what he's doing. Do what the church is called to do. The church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, all the churches, including the church at Dallas, called to do these things to show their love for the Lord. He said, listen, what you do, church, is really great. I like what you do. What you've lost is very troubling. But the resolution to the problem is also quite simple. You've forgotten something, the letter says, and I know what you forgot. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, he says. In other words, you forgot where this gospel had placed you, church. Now, a generation before, a couple of decades before, Paul had written that famous letter to this church, the letter to the Ephesians, a very theological letter, a soaring theological letter, all about God's building of the church through the ages of history. And Paul opened that letter with with these words, among others. He said to them, God has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, where had this gospel placed the church of Ephesus? For all practical purposes, along with all that it had given to them, it had placed them in heaven itself. It had placed them in the heavenly places. It had placed them in Christ. Now, in case you want the John Revelation version of this and not just the Paul Ephesians version of it, it is here. You just have to notice that self-identity of the sender in verse 1. What aspect of the vision of Jesus did Jesus want for this church to see and remember? What did he say to them? These are the words of him who, what? Holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What does this picture tell you about where the gospel had placed them? This gospel had placed them in the hand of Jesus himself. It had put them in the hands of the very Son of God in the grasp of the king of the universe. Do you want to recover what you've lost, he says? Then remember where the gospel has placed you. He goes on to say, repent and do the works you did at first. And if you don't, 
I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, just imagine such a rebuke to such a theologically astute church as this one. Surely not to churches like ours or others that we know that are so strong in theology and so well kept in our moral care of one another. And even of our gospel reminders of one another, imagine a rebuke of this nature coming to such a church. In this case, it is, I think, kind of a jab at the history of the city of Ephesus. The words that he uses here, removing the lampstand, I'm going to remove your location from you. Ephesus was originally a seaport on the Aegean Sea by way of a river. You can kind of think of New Orleans, a major river passing through that ran right to the sea just a couple of miles away. And during the first century, the Roman emperors carefully kept the river dredged and clear with a harbor in the city because it was so important to have access to the ocean. But that river was very persistent in the silt that it brought down from the geography upstream. And now, if you visit Ephesus, there's... No ocean in sight. There's no river carrying anyone to the ocean. It's filled up and gone. In a sense, the city itself had been removed from its original spot. Now, these people apparently took this letter to heart. Some 20 years later, there was a a theologian named Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch in, in what we call Syria nowadays. And Ignatius had been arrested by the Roman authorities and condemned to die in Rome. And so he was traveling under guard throughout Asia Minor on his way to Rome to meet his death. And on his way, he wrote letters to churches, one of them to this church in Ephesus. Historians refer to these letters as an interesting uh, little bit of, of a snapshot picture of what was happening in the the first to second century church, and Ignatius wrote a letter to the Ephesian church some 20 years after John had delivered the revelation. And Ignatius' letter to them was a letter of encouragement and even commendation of their love for Christ. They had taken the letter to heart, and in some sense, they apparently had repented. They had turned away and, and recovered what they had lost. But nevertheless, the warning is very sober, isn't it? And it's this. Any church is expendable. The church and the building of it is the most important thing that God is doing throughout all of history. But any church is expendable that does not acknowledge where the gospel has placed it. In the hand of Jesus himself. Churches come... And churches go. We all know that. I mean, you look around the landscape of North Texas, of Dallas, and see churches are coming all the time, and they're going all the time. Churches close their doors every week all over this country and for many reasons. But no church is, expend, is, 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 is totally necessary because God is building the bigger picture. You know, we become partial to our particular expression of the church. And we like what we like, and we don't like what we don't like. But Revelation puts the church into the perspective of all of history. And this is the service that this amazing and odd book does for us at the end of the Bible. 
It's preparation as the bride of Christ is the most important thing that God is doing in, in all of history. All of history is its dressing room. So we have to adjust our perspective on just what we do here on a Sunday morning in this theater. You know, you don't come here to do your religious duty. You don't come here to check it off the box and be done with it. You don't come here certainly to gain favor with the deity. Rather, you come here in order to dress the bride of Christ in the praise of your Savior. This is what the book of Revelation gives to us, a a perspective on all of history and our place in it. You know, maybe you sometimes wonder, what's my life all about? Why do I go to work every day and come home and just do the things I'm doing for years upon years upon years without end, it almost seems at times. But God is at work building something much bigger than we can even see. And in our midst, he's busy tapping the trunk. Always tapping the trunk so that the dead leaves fall to the ground that he might throw them away. Remember where he's placed you. Remember where he's put you into the hands of the Son of God himself. And to the one who conquers, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, we give you thanks for your love for us, for your call to us to believe and to follow after you, to trust in the righteousness of Christ and to recognize that you're building your church. Even in the midst of the tribulation and tumult of the war of this world, yet you are at work. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith to believe that and to recognize and see that you are the one who has called us and you are the one who is doing it, who is building us up, building all of your church up to conquer the evil one, to put away the imposter and to restore all that you've made to be just as you call it to be. And for these things, we give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.